Hey guys, this is Naeem and you've reached the Mosaic Church Podcast. So excited that you're part of our listening community and I'd love for you to be even more connected. So check out our website. There's more content there and there's more opportunities for you to get connected in our ministries and events as well. Also, love for you to share this content. If this is blessed to you, I know that God wants to use you to bless other people with it. So share this podcast, if you will. Lastly, would you consider supporting this ministry? This is made possible by other people's generosity, and I'd love for you to pay it forward. Join us to reclaim the message and the movement of Jesus together. So would you consider giving to this ministry? I know that God is able to do immeasurably more through us when we come together. Thank you so much. God bless you. Enjoy. Whoa, we were back. I mean, that's how excited everybody is about those figures that were on uh, the slide right there. Like, like, hold on, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Just, just follow me for one second. Jay-Z and Beyonce. Cool. Here's the second one. Um, Tom Holland and Zendaya, right? Right? Spider-Man and the chick from Dune that was on for about two minutes of the, what was that, three-hour movie? Right. Uh, you know, you've got uh, the Sesame Street characters, Bernie, and who's the other that guy? Bernie, right, right. My parents didn't let me watch Sesame Street. It was very difficult childhood, but I've survived. <laughs> like, no Sesame Street in Indian households. No, I'm kidding. Joke. Uh, like, so I just have a, a question. Um, how do they make it work? How does it work? Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever listened to the album 444 that Jay-Z put out a, a while back. I'm not saying that you should listen to it. I'm just saying if you have happened to listen to it, you get into some incredible dysfunction that he kind of talks about and unveils throughout his life. And so the big question that I have for us today is, what does it take to be in relationship with people? And now here's the thing. I don't know that if we brought out, and great news, we actually have Jay-Z and Beyonce, they're about to come. <laughs> All the news channels are here. and every, No, they're not, they're not here. But let's just say that they came out and we, we sat them down and I did my uh, best David Letterman sitting in the middle. I'm Indian, not white, but it's okay. And they're over here. And, and I did an interview and I asked them, how did y'all make this work? I don't know that we would get the exact answer that we're looking for, but I think that if we diagnosed and kind of got into the underground belly of what is actually taking place in that relationship, here is my thought, my suggestion, and what I believe the scriptures point to in order to answer that question, what does it take to be in relationship with people? And here is what I believe is the answer, humility. Humility. Now, I heard one amen and a bunch of silence, <laughs> right? Because here's the, here's the thing. Humility is a hard pill to swallow. Nobody's running around in the world waving the humble flag, <laughs> you know? Nah, man, our culture is like pride and power and control and, and do whatever it takes to have strength and, and humility. Nah, forget that mess. We don't need none of that. Humility is the gateway to weakness, not strength. Humility is how you get subjugated and oppressed, not how you're elevated and lifted up. 
Humility is what got everybody into uh, the problems that they're in in the first place. At least that's what our culture attempts to tell us. And yet I'm just going to go ahead and, and give it away. The Bible seems to suggest that humility is in fact the soil that we have to cultivate in our lives in order for relationships to flourish. And this, y'all, is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. This is how the world looks at a bunch of people who follow a person who died on a cross willingly and say, how in the world do people that seem to have nothing in common call themselves a household and a family of God? It is, in fact, offensive to the world. And the flag that we wave is the flag that Jesus waved on his way to the cross. It is a flag of humility. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about humility. He says this, that humility is the proper estimate of oneself. Humility is the proper estimate of oneself. And I love Spurgeon, and it's very uh, dangerous to, to disagree with Charles Spurgeon. And I'm not going to disagree with him, but I am going to suggest that Spurgeon makes a couple um, assumptions, presuppositions about this definition of humility. So I want to unpack it with us. There's a really important question that we need to consider before we get to the proper estimate of ourselves. And here's the question, how do we actually see ourselves? How do you and I see ourselves? Uh, I was in uh, Pigeon Forge about a year and a half ago. Anybody been to Pigeon Forge? Wow. <laughs> like, uh, I grew up in Chicago, right? And uh, in Chicago, we didn't have no Pigeon Forges running around the place. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it was kind of like towards the end of COVID, and one of my cousins was getting married, and we decided to do a bachelor party, and it's like, you know, 15 of us Indian dudes, and um, somebody had the great idea, Googled best places to go for a bachelor party in the middle of a pandemic, you know? And like, number one hit, <laughs> Pigeon Forge. What is Pigeon Forge? Well, we found out very quickly. We found out very quick. Like, like, here's what Pigeon Forge... Pigeon Forge is like the country version of Las Vegas. <laughs> it is an odd situation at all extent. So we go to Pigeon Forge. Now we're like, like, I'm telling you, we grew up in Chicago. Like, you know, we're kind of city kids. And we get to Pigeon Forge. We're in our Nikes, our Jordan 1s, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and everybody's got cowboy hats and boots. We're like, why y'all got boots? We learned very quickly why they had boots. All of our shoes were destroyed in like the first five minutes, right? And so we Googled again. Google is, you know, a friend and also an enemy at the same time. Uh, Googled what are the best things to do at Pigeon Forge. Like ATVing, this, this, this. And then all of a sudden there was like, like top five was horseback riding. <laughs> so we're like, yo. Oh, that sounds amazing, right? We have watched Clint Eastwood do some incredible things on the back of a horse, right? Like, this feels hype. Like, we could do this. And so we all get out, and we go to this place, and we, we went ATVing first, but then we went on to... Uh, ATVing was great. It felt like we were, like, speed racing on four-wheelers, you know? But then we came, and we all lined up in this big old place where all, there are all of these horses. And if you could feel anxiety coming out of a group of people, you could feel the anxiety of me and all my cousins, all 10 of us lined up. 
You see, instantly, when we were lined up, we've never really been across of like a real horse before. These things are ginormous. These, they're, they're like, like dinosaurs, like kind of feel like dinosaurs, like right in front of you, right? And so we're standing there, and, we're, and the, the horse, I won't ever forget, like the rail is like right here, and they line us up over here, and they put, and there's one horse, this white horse that is just away from everybody else, and I swear, I kid you not, the white horse stares at me in the face and starts to like stare me down. <laughs> I'm looking at the horse, the horse is looking at me, I'm like, yo, God gave me dominion and rule, not you. <laughs> That horse didn't back down. I'm like, listen, you're a whack horse anyways. You're over here by yourself. Nobody's even by you. Like, I'm not worried about you, right? And so we go, and so this is the system. This is what they do. They take you on top of a, of a platform, right? And they put you on a scale. I mean, insecurity times 100, right? I'm like, can I take, let me take my shoes off? And <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, phone, iPhone through right there. And let me, but, they, but here, and here's why, y'all. I'm telling you, this is like amazing. You put you on a scale and they weigh, and then they bring horses out to match kind of, you know, whatever numbers are in front of you. We haven't seen in a while. There's the numbers. And I'm like, are you sure this thing is working? So then the, 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 and the first horse that comes out is this beautiful kind of polka dotted milk chocolate horse, a bit smaller, you know, and, and, and I'm like, that's my horse. This is a beautiful horse. And I'm getting off the scale to just like, hey, I will jump on this horse. And they're like, oh, sir, 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 no, 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 no. And they bring like this teenager up. Like, you know, weighs 75 pounds. <laughs> That's your horse. At this point, my stress is a little bit hard. I'm like, it's okay. God's got me. I am not worried about this at all. And then there's another horse that comes up a bit bigger, you know. Uh, this was uh, no polka dots, all chocolate. I'm like, I really love milk chocolate, so I feel a connection between me and this horse. And the horse got, and then another one of my cousins goes, and they're like, no, no, sir, we're, that, that's not the horse for you. And then this happens over and over. And finally, I kid you not, I'm waiting in the back. All I'm staring at is the number in front of me. And I'm thinking, what is going, and they bring out y'all. The white horse. <laughs> and the white horse, and I can't, I, I swear the white horse snickered at me. <laughs> came like, the white horse knew something I did not know. The white horse came around and sat there, and, and I was like, are there, can we, I, I demand a recount. Can we go back and find out if there are any other horses back in here? No, 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 the white horse was the horse. So um, I, I get on the white horse, and <laughs> I don't know, people trust me. They think I've been on like horsebacks before. I don't know what people thought. Maybe it's because I don't think I had the car heart, heart shirt. Like, I just think this looks cool. I didn't know this was like cowboy stuff, you know? Uh, and so I, <laughs> I get on and they say, by the way, sir, everything's going to be okay. Whenever a, what do they call them? A rodeo guy? Whatever. Whenever the rodeo guy says, uh, it's all going to be okay, it's never going to be okay. <laughs> okay? You're getting conned. And go, everything's okay. Listen, the, you just need to know one very important thing about snow. This is the white horse's name, Snow. No, yeah, uh, just, just wait till the end of the story. Snow. Uh, snow has a sensitive mouth. I'm like, what? Snow got a sensitive mouth. I got a sensitive mouth too. What does Snow got a sensitive about? Snow's got a great life. He's not here eating all this stuff. No, Snow has a sensitive mouth. So when you take the reins... You just got to be real careful. I'm like, there are reins? What do I do with this? I don't even know what's going on. And then they go, by the way, Snow also has some um, relationship dysfunctions. 
you gave me a white horse. You gave me a white horse that has got a sensitive mouth and relationship dysfunction. And the rodeo guy goes, you look like you can handle it. I'm like, why? Because of the weight on the scale? Like, no, I can't handle that. I can't. I want, a re I want a refund. I can't do this. It's too late. You're on the horse. All right, I'm on the horse. And so we go out, and, and uh, my other cousin is in front of me. Now, kids, this is an insane scene. This is uh, 10 to 12 Indian guys all <laughs> on horses that the rest of Pigeon Forge knows have no business to be on horses. All right? And we're, ro we're rolling, and we're all, and I'm going with, and I'm starting to, like, I'm doing my inner Caesar Milan, right? I'm like, snow, petting, we got this together. You've gone through some stuff. Snow, I've gone through some stuff, right? Listen, you've got some relationship dysfunction. Lord knows I got some relationship dysfunction. I'm, I'm, I'm whispering sweet nothings into Snow's ear. And, you know, the one thing the rodeo person said is, whatever you do, just make sure Snow doesn't end up behind another horse named Jafar. Oh. I'm like, listen, listen, y'all. I should have known from the moment that that person said the horse's name is Jafar what I was about to get myself into. So they put a couple horses in between us, but for whatever reason, Snow and Jafar are like opposites that attract each other. And the two horses that were in between Snow and Jafar, and, and my other cousin is on Jafar, um, they, the two horses in the middle knew they didn't want to be in the middle to handle the dysfunction. Have you ever been in a relationship with people that are just, and you're in the middle? What do you do? You leave. That's what you do. That's what happened. The two horses, they left. All of a sudden, snow is here, uh, Jafar is over here, and we're going through a, a patch, we're going through a, a, a place, and there is a, a, a pivot, right? Like there's a, a, there's a divide. Uh, one way is incredibly easy, incredibly easy. The horses have done this trail a billion times. They know they're supposed to go this way. In the other side, by, oh, another important detail, it starts to rain, right? Okay, it's raining. <laughs> We're cool. And if anybody thinks I'm making this up, I've got the videos, all right, to prove all of this. So I've got receipts. So all of a sudden, there's another path, and it says there's a little sign that says, for experts only, you know? And, and, and there's the rodeo guy all the way in the, in the front, and there's another person all the way in the back, and we're kind of in the middle. And so all of a sudden, now snow is behind Jafar. Jafar does like a like sound, which is just, just evil. It's an evil sound. And Jafar decides to go to the left and not to the right. So there is a whole group of horses, and the Indians are split. There are five of us that are going the safe route, and the other five of us are following Jafar and his evil ways down. And I kid you not, we are going down. It is a steep slope. I knew that the rodeo guys were very, very, very concerned because all of a sudden they start yelling, lean back, lean back. So all five of us Indian dudes, lean back, lean back, you know? And we, uh, God knows only how we survived this, but we went down this steep, steep slope, right? We finally survived. We get, we get to the end of this and we get off and I'm, I'm kind of shaking, but it was kind of fun. And, and we're talking to the rodeo guy um, and I asked like, yo, what happened? What happened, what happened with Jafar and what happened with Snow? And, uh, and the, the rodeo guy said, well, here's what happens whenever Snow and Jafar are by each other. Jafar begins to feel like he's got to size himself up because he's trying to show off to Snow. And Snow wants nothing to do with Jafar. 
So Jafar decided to take the harder route because he knew that Snow was going to end up having to follow because that was what the rule was. And so here's what happened. What Jafar saw himself as without Snow there is a totally different thing than what Jafar saw himself as when Snow was there. And here's the question I want to ask us. How do we see ourselves? And does that way we see ourselves change when actually we're in the light of who God is? You see, Jafar acted in a whack way. He wasn't supposed to act like that. But when you and I are aware of who we are, and we're able to rightly see ourselves in light of who God is, it demands that you and I act a certain type of way. And here's one of the challenges that happens, I believe, in human relationships, that the dysfunction that takes place. We see ourselves as me, myself, and I without the reality of a great king who sits on a throne who created the heavens and the universe all together with the breath of his voice that calls us into relationship with him. I will tell you now, one of the keys to healthy relationships is a right awareness of who we are in light of who God is. This isn't about us being weak, but recognizing how strong God is. This isn't about us losing control, but realizing that God has all of the control. This isn't about us being subjugated, but about realizing that we're the subjects of God's kingdom. And God is kind and gracious to give us strength and power and authority through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so humility... Humility is a foundational element in the Christian life and within all human-to-human relationships. I just have three kind of key points that I want to bring out when it comes to humility and three different examples. Here's what's required of humility. One, in our relationships, we have to express humility. We have to express it. This is Genesis 13, verses 8 through 13. I'm going to read the entire section, then we're going to unpack it for a second. So Abram um, said to Lot, this is in the Old Testament, um, please let's not have quarreling between you and me. Has anybody had that conversation with anybody recently? Like I had this with my kids yesterday after football practice. All three of them were acting wild in the, in the, in the car. And I was like, please, let's not have quarreling <laughs> between you and me. <laughs> That's not what I said. If my kids were here, they would be like, that's what I wish I said. That's what I ever said. Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we're relatives. Isn't the whole land before you separate from me? If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's Garden, that's a reference to Eden, and the land of Egypt. Interesting juxtaposition, Eden and Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward. Important note, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Here's what's happening. Abram's becoming rich. Like, more rich. How do we know this? Because in the ancient world, you knew that you were rich because of the amount of cattle and kind of herds that you had, right? Gold and precious metals were reserved for, like, kings. 
The text right before this tells us that Abram not only has um, herds and cattle, but homeboy's got some gold and silver as well. So, so his wealth is rising. And Lot is no slouch himself. He's got some herds as well. So he's got some wealth. And there begins to become a concern over, is the land going to be able to support your people and my people? Now, here's what should have happened in the ancient world. Lot, who is the younger, who's sub, you know, kind of submiss, uh, submissive underneath um, Abram, he should have been the one who says, hey, um, Abram, you've been so kind to me. You've done so much. A lot of my wealth is as a result of what you've done for me. Hey, let me go ahead and take this part of the land that, that you know, is over here, and, and you go take, take this. Here's what Abram does. He doesn't let Lot move first because Abram in his maturity and his humility recognizes that a conflict is just waiting to happen. So Abram does what is unthinkable in the ancient world. He goes first. Humility sometimes requires us to go first. So Abram goes first, and this is what he says. He gives them uh, boundaries. When Abram tells Lot to go right or left, in the Bible, going right meant going south, and going left meant going north. In other words, Abram says, you can go anywhere but go here. Does that sound like Eden? You can eat of any tree, but just don't eat this one tree, right? Abram gives Lot this choice, and the choice is within the promised land of Canaan that God had given him. But what does Lot do? He doesn't choose either right or left. Instead, he decides to move east into the Jordan Valley. All throughout Genesis, whenever the people start moving east, think Tower of Babel, uh, things are about to go sideways for them. It's a sign that you're moving away from God's provision, away from God's promises. And what Lot decides to do is to go into danger. I think this is really intriguing, what happens between Abram and Lot. <clears throat> Here's one. Abram doesn't chase him down. Lot, 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 don't you know what you're doing? It's wrong. Like, you don't, you don't want to do this. Like, if you go right or left, you're within Canaan, God's promised land for us, and you'll be protected by God. But if you go this way into the Jordan Valley, you're going to be where all the pagans are, and where the pagans are are their false gods, and where the false gods are, it's about to be hard for you. Don't do that. Abram doesn't do that. He lays out exactly what the opportunity is. He actually gives the best of the land as an opportunity for Lot within the promised land, and Lot makes his own decision. So here's the idea here. Just because Abram went first doesn't mean in humility that you have to put yourself in a losing position or then run after that person who's making bad decisions. Sometimes humility is you go first and you offer the best possible situation, but humility is also accepting the decision that the other person makes either to benefit or to ruin. And then stepping back and saying, God's got this. I gotta trust that. And we know later in Lot's story, that's exactly what takes place. Here's number two. If you express it, you also have to be able to receive it. In relationships, we need to learn how to embrace and accept the humility of others that is poured out onto us. Right? Lot didn't do this very well. Here's another example. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5. This is Saul, uh, Saul David, and Jonathan. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is talking about David, the, this is a language that's so important. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That means they became besties. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And, and, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. This is adoption language. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then catch this. This is Jonathan, the prince of the kingdom, the heir apparent to all of Israel's kingship. And Jonathan strips himself 
of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David accepts it. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over the men of war and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David in that moment could be like, whoa, no, this is so not right. Jonathan, you are the reigning heir apparent prince. It is not my role nor my responsibility to step into this place. What you're like, I can't accept your gesture. And yet that's not what David does. See, um, Jonathan is often misunderstood and misrepresented, I think, in scripture. Here's what I actually believe is happening with Jonathan. Jonathan realizes that the greatest role that he has in his life is not to be the next king of Israel, but actually in humility to realize that God has wired him as the perfect friend for the next king of Israel. That takes incredible humility. And David receives it. It's hard for us when people are kind and gracious to us to just accept it. Because sometimes we think there's strings attached to it. And here's what David and Jonathan show us. That in healthy, authentic relationships that are rooted in the kingdom of God and its ethics... That there are no strings attached. That relationship is reciprocal. And we see this later in David's story when he does, he goes way overboard. He does everything that he can in order to preserve Jonathan's family lineage when they're pretty much wiped out. And Jonathan gets yelled at by his dad. If you want to read that, 1 Samuel 20. Here's number three. <clears throat> if we express it, and we are good at receiving it, we also have to be aware that God is always redeeming it. Y'all, humility never goes wasted. God is in the act of, of redeeming and restoring and reconciling. And here's the deal. He does it in ways that are, are, per, um, they are not common to us. They're peculiar to us. It might mean that he's doing it in ways that we might never see or realize with our own eyes. Jonathan never got to see how his humility and that expression with David was realized in his own life, but his son sure does. We sure do, thousands of years later, reading upon this story. You see, humility helps us to realize that there's so much more at stake than just me, myself, and I, and my life. There are generations at play here. I love the story in the New Testament, Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. The apostle Paul has a really good friend named Barnabas. I'll summarize it. Basically, they're buddies, and they go on road trips together all the time. And while they're on their road trip, they're like, yeah, let's preach the gospel and plant churches. Sounds like a really cool road trip. And so Paul says, hey, let's go back on another road trip. And this is what he says. Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. But, but here's some relationship dysfunction. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who is called Mark, but Paul insisted they should not take along this man. Catch this. Why? Because there's baggage. This man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. It says they had such a sharp disagreement 
I mean, the Greek there is, they argued that basically almost threw hands, but didn't throw hands, that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. You see, basically John Mark uh, deserted them in this previous mission, in this previous journey. And Paul's like, I'm not about to go through that again. Are you crazy? But here's the detail that the text here doesn't tell us we find out later. Yo, John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. <laughs> Talk about relationship dysfunction. This is a little bit difficult now. Because Barnabas is like, yeah, I know he messed up, but he's kind of family. Can we give him another chance? And Paul's like, no. He deserted us. He's going to do it again. Right? And here's what we find is two people that had conviction, that expressed mutual humility to each other, that still fought. They still had a sharp disagreement. So I want to also debunk this idea that, oh man, the humble life means there's no disagreements. Oh man, the humble life means that there's no um, conflict or relationship dysfunction. No, no, no. The humble life is the key to get through the conflict. The humble life is the key to get through the disagreement. The humble life is, is the opportunity and the secret ingredient to keep relationships together and not see them destroyed in the presence of chaos. We're really lucky that we get to read from 2 Timothy 4.11 because we might not ever know what took place between Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Catch this much later in Paul's life as he's writing to Timothy, who's one of his um, closest. He calls him a son in the faith. Um, this is what Paul says to Timothy. Um, hey, Timothy, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark. This is the same Mark as Acts 15. Bring Mark with you. And then he adds this line, for he is useful to me in ministry. The same person who deserted him now, many, many years later, Paul in his old age says, now that person is useful to me. Let me just point out another, like, you know, God's providence kind of situation here. If Paul and Barnabas take John Mark, they just go to one place. But as a result of this conflict and having to navigate through it with humility, Paul takes Silas and goes a different direction. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes a different direction. Y'all, the gospel is multiplied even faster in the midst of it. That's what humility does. Now, we've gone a, a long time talking about all these different biblical people and stories, but there's no greater example of humility in a relationship than Jesus he was humble in the very nature of the incarnation that he left the perfection of divinity and, and, and heaven and came into the chaos of earth. This is what Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, that Jesus adopted the same attitude, um, or sorry, that we should adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with, with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had to come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You see, Jesus expresses humility. How? When he washes the feet of the disciples. Y'all ever wash anybody's feet? No? Well, good news, we've got buckets of water, right? <laughs> I'm playing. You see, in the ancient world, feet are nasty. You walk around barefoot with sandals and there's fecal matter and dirt and dust and mud and, and animals. And it's, it's disgusting. 
It's disgusting, y'all. We don't, we don't grasp the ancient world. This is what Jesus does. He gets on his knees and he cleans the feet of his disciples. This is a posture of humility. He expresses it. Jesus also is receptive of humble actions. In Matthew 26, he's anointed by perfume by this woman. The rest of the disciples are, are calling this whole situation crazy. Don't you know how many people you could feed? Don't you know all this other stuff? Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand what's happening right now. The woman that one bottle of oil was probably the equivalent of an entire retirement fund. This was costly. Jesus is receptive of it. And as we close, here's the, here's the last thing that we know to be true because we sit outside of the story of Scripture that's here and we can look in on it that God redeemed the humility of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross reconciled you and I together. It's because of Jesus that we can enact humility, that we can express it, that we can receive it, that we can trust that God is going to redeem it. It's because of Jesus that we can navigate not around or not under or not over, but through hard relationships. It's because of Jesus that the humble life is possible. Um, it's not lost on me that in a room this size and with an online audience that um, there's some hard relationship dynamics that are at play. It's just part of life. I mean, that's just what, what it is. And there's some processing that's probably taking place. Like, how do I express it? How do I receive it? How do I know that God is going to redeem it? And so we want to take a, a time now to just um, process and to reflect on all these things and what scripture teaches us and of Jesus' own example. And so there are different stations that we have out over here. One is a place where you can light a candle and you can write down a prayer. I love the visual symbolism of light. Here's a thought, go into a very dark room, light a match. What happens? The darkness recedes. There's never a moment ever where darkness can overcome light. <laughs> Jesus is the light of the world. We have a, another section where you can get prayer. And we have another section where there's communion, there's bread, and there's juice. And the bread is a representation of Jesus and his broken body. I think, again, uniquely, of all the things that Jesus could have reminded us to remember him by, it's not the miracles, it's, it, it's not uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He says, remember my broken body that took place on the cross. Remember the blood that was spilled on behalf of humanity that he loves and he longs to see restored into his household. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you that the humble life is possible, not because we can like manifest it or work it out or, or, or we can do it of our own grit and grind, but, but because you have gone before us and already lived it. You have deposited your spirit in, into us so that we can rely on the spirit to express humility, to, to receive humility, and also to know that you will always redeem humility in the life of your children. We trust you and we love you. We want our lives to be a reflection of your goodness and we pray this week and all the weeks to come 
that you would equip and empower us to live the humble life of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Mosaic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more audio and video content, visit us at mosaicchurch.tv.